and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Many of you may know we are part of the Forward Radio family here at 106.5 FM in Louisville, Kentucky. There's a whole world of other great programming happening here, such as Give Back Radio, which interviews a different nonprofit each week and gives you a glimpse into what they do, how they're helping those in the community, and how you can get involved. And a brand new show called Creative Conversations with host Alonzo Lamont, which focuses on the arts community locally and nationally. Go to the website, forwardradio.org, to find out when you can stream those shows or how you can find them in podcast form. And if you've enjoyed our show, we humbly ask that you share it with a friend. Tell them how they can find the great conversations we have with readers, writers, librarians, teachers, and artists right here on Forward Radio's website or as a podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe and never miss an episode. Thanks. Our guest this week, James Markert, is a Renaissance man. He was a tennis pro for over 20 years, a bookstore owner, a screenwriter, and the author of five historical fiction novels. His first novel, A White Wind Blue, focused on some local Louisville history with the story of the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, one of the largest facilities in the country for tuberculosis patients during the TB epidemic in the early 1900s. Now Waverly Hills is known internationally for being the home of the haunted, but James imagined what life was like for doctors and patients inside its walls. With the success of that book, James went on to write novels about Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl, a chapel in the woods of South Carolina during World War I, a bourbon distillery after the end of Prohibition, and a hotel for Alzheimer's patients in California after World War II. His books are known for combining history with magical realism. Markert has also written multiple screenplays, with one being made into a movie, and has recently given writing TV shows a try. James talks to us about the downfalls of doing too much research before writing historical fiction, strange things that happen on the movie set of indie films when you were the screenwriter, what books his English teacher introduced him to which turned him into a voracious reader, and what genre he originally wanted to write. Amy and I have with us a local author, a Louisvillian, James Markert. And we have actually talked to James before, but we had some technological snafus. And so we're lucky that we get to talk to him again and that he has agreed to talk to us again. James, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome for the second time. So tell our audience just a little bit about yourself. And are you from Louisville originally? I am. Um, I went to DeSales High School in UofL, history major, and been a tennis pro for 26 years. Recently retired from that and attempted to open up my own bookstore, but the timing of it didn't work out. And because of the virus, I don't think it's going to open back up. 
but I'm still okay. riding. <laughs> that really stinks. Yeah, that you've got it, time for more riding. Worked out. I do, and I've done a ton over the last two months. Well, we want to talk about that. So you've written a number of books. You've written five books altogether, I believe. Your most mm-hmm. recent one was The Midnight at the Tuscany Hotel. And that did that come out right. last year? Yes. That one has a dual timeline. It takes place right after World War II, and then it skips back to late 1800s Tuscany. The main character returns back from the war, and he's got post-traumatic, well, I guess they called it battle fatigue back then, but he's really struggling with nightmares and flashbacks. And when he comes home, his little boy doesn't remember him because he was so young when he left. And his father, Robert Gandy, who's now living with him, come down with Alzheimer's while he was at the war. And he doesn't remember Vittorio either. So he comes back from the war with a situation where his son and father, neither one of them know who he is. His father, Robert Gandy, his big deal was being a sculptor, even though he grew up wanting to paint. But he was unable to see color, so he ended up sculpting instead of painting. But he, in the late 1800s, helped his wife escape from Tuscany, and he ends up building a hotel for her in Southern California called the Tuscany Hotel. And it's kind of like a Renaissance hotel. It's a haven for artists and sculptures and uh, musicians. And people come in there and stay for long periods of times and practice their crafts. And you might have artists from Europe come over and stay for a summer and paint one of the ceilings and then move on. And especially the 1920s, Roaring Twenties was kind of the heyday for the hotel. But because of tragedy and the the depression, the hotel closes down. One night, Robert Gandy breaks out of the house. I say breaks out, but with his Alzheimer's, that's what it seems like. And he goes back to the hotel, Vittorio, and they go look for him and find him sculpting in the middle of the piazza. And he seems back to normal. And they found out that he drank water from the Piazza Fountain and it restored his memory. So the hotel comes back to life and starts filling up with Alzheimer's patients and brings life back to the hotel again. So what was it that inspired the idea for this novel of yours? Um, I, I grew up in a family of artists. My sister is a pianist. My brother's an artist. He's a sculpture major at UofL. My father has been designing stained glass windows for probably 40, 50 years now. And he's also does sculptures. He's really good friends with Ed Hamilton and they, they work on a lot of things together. But basically our house was like growing up in a museum with art books everywhere, art on the wall. We had stuff from, you know, my dad's stuff, my brother's stuff, uh, Ed Hamilton's stuff, Bob Lockhart's stuff, and it's all brilliant. And I don't know, that kind of set the path for this novel, even though it took me a long time not to write it, but to get to the point where I was ready to write it. Because it was, I think this is my fifth published novel, but probably like the 10th or 11th novel that I've written. So were you having to ask your brother and your dad questions about art and sculpting in order to be able to write it accurately? 
I did, you know, I asked some questions, but it was more of uh, stealing books from my dad's house for research. Not really stealing. I, it got to the point where I would go over there and he would just give me a book every time to take home. And I think I'd collect them over the years. I think half his library is in my house now. But a lot of it was books and visual, just looking at pictures of art. And, you know, that mm-hmm. definitely inspired what ended up happening with the story. So I'm interested in what you were saying. It took a, a lot longer time to plan out the book than to actually write it. So what would you say the amount of time you spent preparing to write it versus the time you spent writing it? A lot of times with books, you can be thinking of bits of it, characters, plot points for years. And I think off and on, I, you know, I was thinking about this book and mainly of the hotel first. I think the fountain was the first thing that came to my mind, just in general, a mosaic fountain. The water would restore memory. And from that, it took off from there. The The hotel was built around the fountain. And then, you know, researching Tuscany, the path of the main character, Vittorio, I took after a lot of the stuff that happened to my grandfather during the war. A lot of the stuff in the book happened to him, and I fictionalized it. But in that regard, this book really meant meant a lot to me and wanted to make sure I was ready to write it when I did. So of the five novels you've written that that have been published, do you have one that is your favorite or have you had ones that have been your favorite, but then that changes? Tell us about your relationship with your books. I guess my favorite book is always the one I'm working on. At the same time, it's my least favorite because you go through those frustrating parts of writing a book. But if I had to pick, it goes back to my first one, A White Wind Blue, or maybe this one. Because I get asked that question, and I'm starting to lean towards Midnight at the Tuscany Hotel. Just because I visualize it as a movie, at the same time as a a good book club book. A lot of good discussions in it. But I think the whole art and art history... And there's even a little bit of Greek mythology woven in. There's something about this book that really resonates just as I was writing it and afterwards just thinking back on it. So I'd say this one, my, my last one. You mentioned A White Wind Blue. And that book I have read, I had borrowed it from the library. I lent it to my mother and she just read it. I'm curious because that story is set in Louisville during mm-hmm. the tuberculosis epidemic. So I'm curious whether what we've been living through the last several months, has it brought things back about that book or or made you look at that book a little differently? It has for sure. Just, you know, looking back on it, the main part of that story takes place in the late 1920s when TB was running rampant. But a good deal of the backstory takes place during the 1918 Spanish flu. So I find myself, even before, you know, we started doing all the social distancing and lockdown, comparing what I was seeing in Europe and Italy to what I'd researched with the 1918 flu. I had no idea to what extent or how bad it would be, but something about what was happening in Italy, in northern Italy, definitely made me recall the 
1918 flu and the research I did for it, which was so long ago. I'm trying to think. That book came out in 2013, so I probably wrote it in 2011 or 12. Well, you studied history when you were in college at the University of Louisville, and I think all of your novels are historical fiction, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So how does your interest in history infuse itself into your writing? And how do you get ideas to investigate for your books? I just love history to begin with. And I kind of took a detour in college. My first two years were physical therapy. And we got to the point where we were going to go in and look at a cadaver. And I stopped at the door, didn't even go in. And then got my car, drove back to Yavelle and switched my major to history. (laughs) (laughs) Just that same day. But then that's about the time I was piddling with, you know, writing my first novel. And and my first four novels, which didn't get bought, they were all contemporary thrillers, suspense. And it wasn't until I went to Waverly Hills and even then, I was intending, when I did a tour, of writing something scary, suspenseful, something Stephen King would be proud of. But when I got to Waverly Hills and saw the building and the, and, and the history and the architecture and heard the stories, you know, of course, they told us it was haunted. And, and I thought, you know, what if this place is haunted? What's their story? And then I thought, you know, I was standing up on the fourth floor solarium porch and I Imagine the sound of a violin and then a piano. And then I thought of a doctor trying to help heal the patients there with music. That's where that story was born. And of course, with the book industry, once you have a book bought, that's what you keep on doing. So I wrote historical fiction with the white wind blue. So that's what was expected of me after that, which is fine because I found once I started writing historical fiction that I really began to find my voice as a writer. Historical fiction is one of my favorite genres. And I read your book, What Blooms from Dust. That one was about the Dust Bowl. And there were all kinds of elements in that book that I thought couldn't actually be true when I was reading it at the time. And then I read that it was based on a book of history that you had read about the Dust Bowl. I listened to part of that book on audiobook, and most of those things were true. And so mm-hmm. do you often read a lot of history books yourself? And does, does that give you ideas? I do, but it's most of the history books I read are for research specifically. Most of my pleasure reading is fiction. But once I settle on a time period or a subject, then I'll dive in to history books at that point just to learn more about the time period. But that's one I'd always been interested in because you never really heard much about the Dust Bowl. There was always World War One, Roaring Twenties, and then skipped to World War Two. But the Dust Bowl was just a fascinating time period, and it was horrifying. So what blooms yeah. from dust? It's, it's definitely not a horror novel, but it's a horrifying novel. Just the constant dust storms and the you know the rabbits and the grasshoppers and it's just kind of out of this world it seems sort we of, don't end learn of about time. yeah, that, yeah that's what it was and a lot of the people who lived through it that's what they thought it was it was the end of days one of the things that i took on with that book is that it was such a dark time and i wanted to, to write a story 
to capture the darkness of that of that time period, but also somehow bring about a sense of hope. And that I wanted to tackle that with that story, and a and I was I was happy with how it ended. Well, when you're writing about a historical subject like the Dust Bowl, how much research do you do, and how do you know when it's enough? I mean, it seems like in some ways that you could just research a topic forever. So mm-hmm. how much research do you do for your novels? I'm definitely not one of those historical novelists who research for years. I think for What Blooms from Dust, I researched for probably two months. And then I start losing patience and I, I have to sit down and start making stuff up because that, that's the enjoyment for me is creating characters and and telling my story. I find if you do too much research, you end up with too many details that don't need to go in or would slow the narrative down. So what I typically do is do enough research to get a good idea of the time period, the tone, and then I just start writing. And then I'll research more as I go. But I definitely, I don't get bogged down in the research, although I enjoy it, but I, I just get impatient and I need to sit down and write. You mentioned Stephen King, that that's what you were originally hoping to write, you know, kind of on the order of a thriller. You know, Stephen King novels a lot of times have sort of a supernatural element to them, which can also be found in your novels. So talk to us a little bit about that supernatural element. Let's see, with The White Wind Blue is just straight up historical fiction. My second novel, The Angel's Share, is... It's historically accurate, but there's some elements in it they would refer to as magical realism, you know, a little bit of supernatural. It, it just kind of forces you to, to stretch your imagination a little bit. And I didn't go into the novels trying to do that. It just, that's what the story became. Because in The Angel's Share, it, well, it's not giving anything away, but there's a minor miracle as far as someone who is handicap and they're suddenly walking again but there's an element of magical realism in it where you have to stretch your imagination but once i opened up that door my third book all things bright and strange i realized it's not a huge genre to mix historical fiction with supernatural but once i did it with the angel share i had a lot of fun with it with all things bright and strange with the woods that were haunted and just different things that happened in the town. And, and once I did that, that kind of became my thing. So I would write stories that are set back in history, but usually involve some elements of uh, supernatural. I'm a huge Stephen King fan and I do like the supernatural. That was my way of combining two of my Uh, loves, I guess, history and the unknown. Speaking of Stephen King, what were your childhood reading and writing habits like? Did you read him when you were younger? I did, but not really young. And this is what a lot of people find funny is that I hated to write. I hated to read. I think my sister used to bribe me when I was little to read a book. I read James and the Giant Peach, because my name was in the title. I thought it was about me, but it wasn't. (laughs) In high school, I think it was my junior year, we read 
catcher in the rye. And then our teacher said, okay, enough of the classics. We're going to read Stephen King the rest of the year. And that's what we did. We read some of his novellas. We read uh, Shawshank. We read uh, The Body, which was made into the movie Stand By Me. We read The Green Mile. We read some of the Bachman books. But once I started reading those, I was addicted. And even after the school year ended, I went through every Stephen King book he'd written. And then I went on to Dean Koontz, John Grisham, and just... There probably hasn't been a day since where I haven't read something. So I went from hating to reading to loving it just because I found the right reader. I still think a lot of kids, whether it be middle school, high school, don't like reading because we're still we're forced to read the so-called classics. And even the classics now, when I try to read them, I get bored. I don't know. I, I would love to see today's youth being, I don't know, a little bit broader range of books that they're allowed to read. I think that was a great strategy by your teacher. I mean, you, kids certainly couldn't say it was boring, right? Stephen King. Oh, no. And he made, we, you know, some people may not like his fiction, but he, it is not boring. No, it's not boring. And, and he does give you things to talk about. I mean, just about everybody in class read it. And they were engaged in conversation. And, you know, I, I think that's the main point with books, whether they're classics or not. If they get kids to read and talk about it, I think that's good. So have you read any of Joe Hill's books? I have. I've read, let's see, I think I've read all of them. I think his latest was, he had The Fireman and then Strange Weather, I think was a group of four novellas but i've either read most or all of his and he's he's good he's very similar to his dad for our listeners who maybe aren't aware joe hill is the son of stephen king so i read one of his books because i have been a late reader of stephen king i didn't read anything by him until within the last year so (laughs) i haven't read anything by joe hill yet but i did see lock and key on tv which i think is based on one of his books but he looks just like his it dad is. if you see pictures of them side yeah. side. Yeah. I think maybe Joe's his middle name. But what I heard is he, he had an agent for several years before he even told his agent who he was, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, that makes sense to me. If you want to be known for your own talent and not just Stephen King's son, I think it would be easy to right. sort of fall uh, into that. You yeah. Know? But he wanted to he make was, his name on his own. That's great. So you mentioned, James, that you've uh-huh. been writing during the quarantine and social distancing. So tell us a little bit about what your writing process is like, whether you write every day and has that been different during the last couple of months when we've all been in our houses? Generally try to write every day. And I think ever since the angels share came out, I was in the court with my contract, having to put a book out every nine months to a year so I was pretty much writing full time, thanks to my wife being the breadwinner. But I, I would generally sit down at about eight and write until two and then pick pick up the kids from school when they did go to school. 
but I guess since we've all been quarantined, the schedule hasn't been as regular because I dove into a lot of house projects, painting and moving stuff around. <laughs> but I, what I found during the quarantine, because you typically when I would write, I would be the only person in my house. But now the entire family's in the house and we had to quickly make my wife a office in the upstairs bedroom and and I'm writing wherever I could. But I found it was a little more difficult during all this to write books, but I really jumped into writing screenplays. And I wrote a movie during April and then I oh, wow. just, just finished the first episode of a TV series I'm working on. So I've been busy with uh, screenwriting. You have done screenwriting before and had one of your movies produced and made. Yes. Correct? Yeah. A romantic comedy called Second Serve. We shot it back in 2013. Basically, it's a movie making fun of tennis pros. (laughs) But, you know, we shot a low budget and we got some good actors in from TV shows. Josh Hopkins from Cougar Town. Kevin Sussman from Big Bang Theory. He's the comic book clerk. Guillermo Diaz from Scandal. And he's also in Weeds. He played uh, Huck in Scandal. Cameron Monaghan, he's the Joker in Gotham. And also in Shameless. So we had we had some good, good actors come in for it. They were terrible at tennis. But we, we chose <laughs> oh, they were awful very nice people though we chose good actors over good tennis knowing that it was a comedy anyways so that was fun but uh, yeah, i've probably so, written about five six movies since then a couple have been optioned but none have been made but as of now the the movie i wrote back in april it looks like it might be getting made so fingers crossed oh that's great when you were talking about the tennis movie that you had made and you said the the actors were terrible at tennis so were you having to do double duty as both the tennis pro on set and also the screenwriter on set yes i guess i was the tennis consultant it was wasn't funny but the day before we started shooting we went to the scene, the Jewish Community Center was where we shot a, a lot of the tennis, and all the actors were there. And I look out over the courts, and I'm like, "Oh my lord, what have I got myself into?" <laughs> so the main actor, Josh Hopkins, he's like, "Can you teach me how to play tennis in a day?" Because for the movie, it was <laughs> sort of important for him to look like he was good. <laughs> so. <laughs> what we what we found was it happened so fast when the ball hits the strings you can't even pick it up on camera so the main thing for me was just teaching how to swing and it didn't matter where the ball went and <laughs> there were certain times i know there's a scene where cameron monahan who in the movie is supposed to have the worst looking serve ever and josh hopkins character helps him fix it and one night, we filmed this at like three in the morning. Cameron's supposed to hit a serve that finally goes in the box. But to have that happen, I was standing on the court right next to it in the doubles alley. 
And I would watch when Cameron would toss the ball. I would toss the ball. When he took a swing at it, I, I swung at the one I tossed, and then I hit it. And I had to hit it across the court to the opposite service box into this little area. And I practiced it for a while and couldn't get it. And I said, let's just, let's just do it. The director yelled action and I served it and went right where it was supposed to. (laughs) We're like, let's just take that and run with it. (laughs) As an indie film, there's all kinds of crazy stories just because the whole movie's being shot in three weeks. You know, you take, three shots of each scene and you move on. You take the best one, but it was fun. And I'm looking forward to, to doing it again. So with the movie that you wrote in April, that looks like it's going to get made. Mm-hmm. If you've written a novel versus a screenplay, is there a difference in how you market them and what you have your agent do? As far as the book, you know, I write the book, give it to my agent and then, cross my fingers, you know, my agent will pitch it to all the publishers and I just sit and wait and start on something new just so I'm not going crazy waiting. Then if it gets bought, then I'm jumping right back into doing edits and all that stuff at the same time while I'm, you know, whatever I was working on then I'll put on hold. But as far as a movie, you, you write it and then the producer has it and then they just start hiring everybody and typically i think it's pretty much out of the writer's control unless it's with an indie film and i was able to have a lot of say so with second serve which was pretty cool i got to set in and on a on a casting call and different things help choose the main actors and funny story stuff happens in an indie film i know i had to write Cameron Monahan out of his scene one day so he could go to Boston and take a girl to prom. <laughs> yeah. His agent said, Yeah, he can't be there that day. He has to take a girl to prom in Boston. He's in the scene. So I just <laughs> I just yeah. wrote him out of it and went from there. <laughs> a lot of weird things happen in movies. So the books that you mentioned, the ones that you wrote that never got picked up, do you ever think that you'll get those out and try to do something with those? Or are the books that are sitting in the drawer, do you figure they'll always stay there? I don't know if they'll stay there, but they may not come out in that format. I think there's a couple in particular, especially if I could get the screenwriting career rolling again, that could be adapted into movies so at this point i'm just writing i'm working on screenplays researching for another novel and you sometimes it's just see what hits but i am enjoying the uh, series that i'm just started working on it's the first thing that's not historical that i've written in a long time so that's enjoyable never written a television show and what I did was I took the concept of a, a novel that I've been working on off and on for the last couple of years and decided I think it's too much for one book. And that is thought I started reconceptualizing it as a TV show. So I went ahead and wrote the pilot 
and I'm working on all the characters and seeing where they could go, expanding it out a season or two and going from there. So that that's kind of a virgin territory for me. I've never written a TV show, but I'm having fun with it. What genre is that? The, the TV um, show? Horror, suspense. It's about nightmares. Oh, going back to your Stephen yeah, King roots. Kinda, oh, yeah. It's kind of Castle Rock meets True Detective plus um, Stranger Things. Ooh, that sounds <laughs> Mix up my it all alley. up in a bowl. And that's what it is. Oh, oh, that sounds awesome. Sounds like you've been productive during your quarantine time. I, I try sitting still, but I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask about your journey to becoming a writer. We've been talking about you having some experience with tennis. You were a tennis pro. So how yeah. did writing come into the picture for you? It started with my love of reading. And I read so much that, you know, really expanded my imagination. And then I got to thinking, hmm, I've got some ideas. I'm going to give this a shot. And that was terrible at the beginning. It's probably 10 years of rejection before I sold a White Wind Blue. Uh, so White Wind Blue was my, I think it was my fifth novel that I'd written. The previous four never got picked up. But I think the writing each one, every draft, I got better. Every book, I got better. You know, when you got criticism from agents and editors, I took it to heart, used it to make myself a better writer. And then, you know, I had five books published in a row and I still get rejections all the time. I think a lot of people think, you know, he's got a big publisher, he's made it. I still get rejections every week. I've got two books out there now being pitched to publishers and it's just something that comes with the territory. I'm just a little more, more used to it now. You get the rejection and you move on. So I would assume that you think it's important to sort of have a thick skin when it comes to your own, to your own work Absolutely. as far as people's suggestions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I take it personally because usually, you know, especially if you hear something twice, you hear one person say it and another one say it, there's probably a pattern and you think, oh, maybe I do need to change that. You know, I think any writer out there probably writes something and then they think, oh, this is perfect. And then if they sit on it for two, three months and then come back and reread it, thinking, ooh, I need to change that or this. (laughs) But when you are on a deadline and you don't have the luxury or time to let a book sit like that, you know, you got to give it to people when it's not always ready and be ready to take the criticism when they give you advice. So I get a lot of comments from editors or agents and they're like, this needs to change. And rarely will I fight it because I know from experience that they're usually right. I was going to ask you what some of your techniques were to learning how to take criticism and not taking it personally. Is it just usually they're right or you've learned that usually they're right? I've learned that usually they're right. And I go in it with an open mindset to most of the time, they're going to help make it better. I mean, you can't be closed mind as a writer, especially professional editors, agents. If you don't use them in their minds, then you're not allowing the book to be as good as it could be. That and uh, bourbon. Bourbon helps. 
Bourbon <laughs> <laughs> helps any rejection. <laughs> well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. So we're back with James Marker and with Carrie. And I want to know, Carrie, what you're reading. So my sons and I have been reading Watership Down. And I just totally blanked out on the author of Watership Down. No, not Douglas Adams. Maybe it's Douglas Adams. I don't know. Sam Miller, who works at Carmichael's and was on our show a long time ago, talked about Watership Down. And so I added it to my TBR list. And I thought it might be something that my sons would enjoy. We are almost done. I think we have about eight more chapters. It's the story of rabbits. These rabbits, there's two brothers, Hazel and Fiverr. And Fiverr will get a sense that something is wrong. Something bad is going to happen. And so he gets a sense and he says that they have to leave the Warren. So a, a group of rabbits leave the Warren and the whole book is basically their journey to try to establish a new Warren. And so I think at first my sons who are 12 and 10 were kind of like, um, this seems a little babyish, you know, <laughs> like we're reading about rabbits. This seems a little silly, but as you read the book, you realize that this is in the same vein as like, 1984, where the rabbits are actually almost like personality types that they could very easily be human beings. And so it tells the story of all the choices they make in order to establish a new Warren. So one of the major problems is that it's all male rabbits. And so they realize that if they are going to survive they need to do what rabbits do and have baby rabbits and so the major part of the story is having to find females so that they can populate a new area of the English countryside so now that we are about finished I have noticed that my 12 year old you know some of the chapters are shorter and some are longer and I will get to a point in the chapter where I'm tired or it's time for bed and he's going well are we going to keep reading come on tell me more and I don't know if he's doing that because he's really interested or if he's just ready to be done with the book (laughs) but whatever (laughs) he's at least letting me read it to him so like I said we're about eight or nine chapters shy of the end we have actually had some baby bunnies in our yard and so I have really been paying more attention to the rabbits that I see and kind of thinking about this sort of quest to survive and the different personalities that people have and what it takes to be a good leader. So even though it is a story about rabbits, it's a story that's about a lot more than rabbits, which there's there's always a story within the story. Exactly. My childhood dog, we named Fiverr after the dog. Really? Yeah. I think it was too young at the time where I definitely was in my phase where I didn't like reading, but it was my brothers and sister and parents who decided that the mutt that we were given looked like what they thought Fiverr would have looked like. So (laughs) 
so funny. So what did you think of it, Carrie? You said what your son thought of it. I like it. There is a lot of description that I feel like I would probably be better served if I was able to Google some of it because I I can't tell you off the top of my head what a COPS is, C-O-P-S-E. And it mentions all these different types of bushes and shrubs and types of grasses. And so I feel like... Some of it, maybe I have missed out on being able to visualize. Having all that description is a good thing, but it can also be kind of tedious a little bit. There's also parts of the book where the rabbits will tell stories. So the story is kind of like it's about their their rabbit god or like rabbit trickster. So there's sort of these stories that the rabbits tell each other and sometimes they're interesting and sometimes they feel a little tedious. So I feel like this is a story where there's value in it. It's not going to end up being like my favorite book of all time. I'm not sure what my boys will say. (laughs) I I think they'll be like, okay, let's move on to something else. (laughs) So James, what have you been reading? I just finished the power of the dog by Don Winslow. And I'd never read him before. It was one of those books that I'd been wanting to read for a long time. Actually, The Cartel, which was the second of the trilogy about the drug war with U.S. and Mexico. And it had been on my to-read list forever. And I picked it up and realized that it was book two. So I jumped on the uh, Carmichael's website and ordered book one. Of so it was titled "The Power of the Dog," but it blew my mind. It was as far as a suspense thriller. It it was quite the book. I always learned that there's a drug problem in our country, and the drugs flowing from you know South America and Mexico, and the money flying going back south. It's one of those books where it was not only entertaining, but I learned a ton. I mean, I can't can't wait to read the next one. Whenever there's a trilogy or a series, I never read one and then immediately read the next one, especially mm-hmm. if I liked it. I make myself wait. I do the same thing. I can't read them in order, but for me, it's mainly, sometimes you can get too much of a good thing, I guess. And so I like to sp- like to spread them out a little bit. Right, right. But is it is it set mm-hmm. in like in the 80s, 90s? What what's the time period? The entire series spans I think 1970 to current day. So The Power of the Dog is more like 70s, 80s, early 90s. Okay. But I I can't recommend it enough if you really want to get down to the details of how the drug trade works. And the cartels, and it just blew my mind. Amy, what have you been reading? So I am listening to the audiobook of The Outsider by Stephen King. Ooh. Yeah, you know, what a time for me to be talking about a Stephen King book. But this was published in 2018. And this book is a marriage, I would say, between a detective mystery police procedural with a more of a macabre, sinister horror elements to it. And while I read many of Stephen King's earlier books when I was a teenager, I read 
The Shining and Cujo and things like that. I have not kept up much with the second half of his writing career. And he is an extremely, extremely prolific writer. But I have caught up a little bit in this past year. I've read a few. I read Dr. Sleep and I read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. But this particular one, The Outsider, is a little genre bending, I would say. And I had heard that King apparently loves detective novels and he has written a couple. I believe that the Mr. Mercedes series is the first one that he tried. But there's a series of three, I believe. And I haven't read any of those. But this book, The Outsider, features a police detective, Ralph Anderson. And he's trying to solve a murder of a child. And all evidence points to the town's well-known and much-loved Little League coach, Terry Maitland. They have eyewitnesses seeing him near the crime scene and his fingerprints and rare blood type are all all over the crime scene as well. But the strange thing is that Terry Maitland has a foolproof alibi. He was at a teaching conference an hour away with four other teachers at the time of the murder. And so there's no way that he could have been at the crime scene at that time. He can't be two places at once. So what happened? As I hinted before, there is some horror elements to this that come much later in the book. But as always, I feel like King is a master at plot and at and of keeping things suspenseful. So I'm listening to this audiobook, but I did something that I almost never do, which is that I watched the series on HBO first because my husband and daughter wanted to watch it. Uh, so I broke my own rule. I watched the series before I read the book. And part of me wishes that I hadn't done that because I think that the suspense in the book would have been overwhelming had I not done that. But instead, kind of know what's going to happen, basically. I got the suspense through the show. But the reason I wanted to read the book was because I was curious about one of the characters. And her name is Holly Gibney. And she appears in a couple of King's books, most notably the Mr. Mercedes series. And she is a character who has obsessive compulsive disorder. She has sensory processing disorder. She has synesthesia, which is where one sense runs into another. So like maybe if you see the letter A, then you taste bubblegum. Or if you hear a piano playing, maybe it makes you feel scratchy or something. It's, it's where the senses intersect. And she would also probably be on the autism spectrum. So her mind just works in a different way than the average person. But this also gives her different perspectives and talents, which make her an excellent private investigator. So Holly Gibney is hired by Maitland's lawyer to do some digging into this really bizarre case. And so when I was watching the TV show, Holly Gibney was my favorite character. And I wanted to see if Stephen King's Holly is the same as the show's Holly. Holly Gibney also makes an appearance in King's most recent book, If It Bleeds. And that book is a collection of four novellas. And one of those novellas is all about Holly Gibney. So that's what I've been listening to. I highly recommend the audio book. The narrator is really good. That would be a good audio book. Yeah, I have been lucky in that I have listened to three awesome audiobooks in a row so far this month. So I'm a lucky girl. But anyway, that's what I've been reading right now, and I'm really enjoying it. The Holly Gibney character, she's great. I read the Mr. Mercedes trilogy. They're all really good. Well done. But how was the TV show? So you haven't Um, seen the HBO? No. I I loved this TV show. I don't have HBO. I need to get it. (laughs) <laughs> you need to get it for just a couple of months and then like binge yeah. watch all the shows you want to watch and then cancel it. <laughs> but yeah. no, I, that's we love, we love the show. Uh, it was just really well done. I love the actor who played Ralph Anderson. His name's Ben Mendelssohn. He's 
actually a Brit, but he did a really great job. I love the actress who played Holly Gibney. I would highly recommend the series. Okay. It was awesome. But I'd like to find out if the book, you know, whenever you're doing a comparison, how they change things. And I'm probably mm-hmm. a third of the way through the audiobook right now. And so far it stays, you know, pretty faithful to the book. It's so. always a good sign. Yeah. So I want to jump in here and just correct myself. I said that Watership Down was written by Douglas Adams. I got my people with the last name Adams mixed up. Uh, Watership Down is written by Richard Adams. Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So (laughs) (laughs) felt like I needed to correct that. All right. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask James Markert his top five. We are back with James Markert, and we're going to be asking him his top five. James, you have mentioned throughout our discussion that you were a tennis pro for 26 years. So tell us what your life was like when you were a tennis pro, what that kind of looked like day to day. And then what is the top reason you think tennis is a great sport? Um, Early in my career in the 20s and in the first years of my marriage pre-kids I was on the court a lot when you say a lot 30 to 40 hours as a tennis pro is a lot on the body and then once we had my let's see my son's almost 16 once the kids came along I became more of the Mr. Mom and went more to part-time but generally I would you know write in the mornings pick up the kids and then go teach three, four lessons each day and teach long days on Sundays. But let's see what makes tennis a great sport. I think it's the number one burnout sport because it's <laughs> it's such a lonely sport for kids because it's just them out there. But I think that same thing makes it such a good sport is it teaches that mental toughness, you know, going out there, just you and your opponent, you don't have a teammate to throw the ball to or blame the turnover on, but just learning how to battle and fail and eventually learning how to win. I think that makes tennis a, a great sport. Plus, it, you know, it's got a little bit of everything, hand-eye coordination, the running around, the swinging at things. And I don't know, I'm always biased, but I always say that tennis, professional tennis players are the best athletes in the world. They have to run a lot and for a long period of time. I mean, some oh, nope. of those matches are really long. Oh, yeah. You'll watch Nadal play Federer. You know, they go five sets. They're probably covering 11, 12, 13 miles of court. Mm-hmm. So they could be really good condition. Unlike other, you know, professional sports, the tennis season is 11 months. Like baseball, NBA, the, you know, they're six months. Tennis, tennis is almost the entire year. Well, question number two, you and your wife are fans of the show Justified. Who is your top character on the show and why? First, why don't you tell us what the show Justified is about? Uh, Raylan Gibbons, he is a, you know, Harlan County in Kentucky, U.S. Deputy Marshal. And he initially starts out in Florida and then he gets reassigned back to Kentucky where he grew up. But he, you know, he's that detective cowboy. And then you got his nemesis, 
slash old childhood friend Boyd Crowder. I, I just think in general, and I've watched a lot of TV shows, it's one of the best written shows that I've ever seen. And it's got that perfect combination of drama and comedy, but with some amazing characters in it. I would highly recommend it for anyone listening who hasn't seen it. We'll probably start watching it for the third time sometime soon, <laughs> especially one, if we get quarantined again. <laughs> that one was a favorite of my husband and mine as well. And Boyd Crowder was my favorite character, even though he was kind of the bad guy. But he had yeah. the best, best lines. And oh, for sure. that show was based on a short story by, is it Harlan Coben? Do you know? No, Elmore Leonard. Oh, Elmore yeah, Leonard. Elmore Leonard. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it's yes, you're right. He's a like a cowboy, but in the the hills of eastern Kentucky. Right. So yeah, it's a great show. Question number three. You mentioned an interest in learning to make mosaics. So what inspired this desire and what is the top thing about them that you think is cool? The top thing I think cool is just the different patterns of color. And this isn't something that I've been dying to do my whole life, make mosaics. It happened more out of researching my last book, Midnight at the Tuscany Hotel, and describing the mosaic fountain. And looking back, you know, I looked at different pictures of mosaics. And I know the Pompeii, how Vesuvius covered Pompeii, and they ended up digging it up. And a lot of the mosaics were still on the walls and floors. And I don't know, just something about the piece by piece um, aspect of it, I found pretty cool. That's on my to-do list. At some point, I'm going to make a mosaic. I don't know of what, but I want to make one. Well, you are from a so you, you are from a family you, of artists, right? So, are, is anybody in your yes, family my, show you how? My dad's done several over the years, and what's a bummer is I think it was a couple of years ago when I was researching the book. That's when I started getting the idea of making a mosaic, and I asked him, and he had recently before that sold all his mosaic stuff so the tools you need to to do it so james you're saying that doing a mosaic is not a hobby that you you took up during the quarantine no it's a it's (laughs) a future hobby that i will do at some point (laughs) so on that note what has been the top activity that you've done during quarantine and actually enjoyed I've enjoyed writing a movie and the series. Um, let's see, painting, not like painting like your house painting. or, or yes, artistic painting. painting. No, I don't. I would love to be able to artistically paint, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Painting, you know, I, I think I painted three or four rooms of the house. That started from the top of the house, and I'm working my way down. Eventually, I'll make it outside and and uh, do outside stuff too. Some people like painting houses or painting rooms because they find it sort of just the motion kind of calming. Are you one of those people? I like the paint. I like color. So you walk in our house and there's Uh definitely color on the walls, but I I, I do like to paint. It's not something I could do for a living because I, you know, I'll, I'll paint a couple of rooms and get tired of it, but I don't mind painting. So I took up crochet watched some videos and put on my mask and met with my neighbor outside who also wore her mask. And she showed me how to do a couple basic crochet moves. And so now I've been making sea creatures. 
I don't know why. It's just something I've taken up. You said you could listen to audiobooks doing it, though, right? I can, although I'm not adept enough where I can remember how to do it. So I sort of have my laptop set up and my phone and my earbuds. And so I'll listen to the book and then I'll have to watch a YouTube video for a minute. So I know how to do like the next couple rows and I'll pause the YouTube video. So it's not a seamless process yet, Mm -hmm. but I'll get there. I'm impressed though. You teach, (laughs) teach yourself to do something new over quarantine. James, last question. What is the top historical setting that you haven't written about yet, but you would like to explore in a future book? I would say Tuscany, World War II, just the Italian campaign. And I have, I guess I'm cheating a little bit. I've written the first 50 pages of a book that takes place during that time period and a little bit back to the Renaissance. I would love to continue on with that. I guess in school, you learn so much about World War II and the European campaign and England. And we didn't learn as much about the Italian campaign. You know, once I kind of jumped into it a little bit with the midnight at the Tuscany Hotel, and that's one of those things where your research leads you to your next idea. So that's what I would love to do some point soon, right about that time period and and region. So I read quite a few World War II historical fiction novels. And one of the things I like is that almost all of them are from a slightly different either location or um, just about a different aspect of the war. And that war was so broad that I feel like by reading all these different books, it helps to kind of put those pieces together and give you a greater picture of the war as a whole. Right. You know, as opposed to just being about concentration camps or, you know, all of it set in Germany or on the on the mainland. I, I feel like it just really gives right, you. Right, I agree. Yeah. It, gives, it really gives you an idea. Of, it was definitely a world war. It was, you know, every country was affected somehow. Yeah. So there's so many, so many different angles and views and points of view that you could do with World War II. Well, James, thank you so much for being a guest on our show and for putting up with us twice since, like I said, we had some technology issues last time we recorded with you. But it was nice to chat with you again and to hear your updates. And we want you to keep in touch with us and let us know how things uh, shake out as far as your movie and TV pilots. Yep. Happy to do so. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.